Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a longtime user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Ladies and gentlemen, a dramatic reading of the poem November by Thomas Hood. No. 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 I'm sorry, that's not going to happen. I've had enough of your poem reading, whatever you want to call it on the show. Ah, but how else will people know how literary I am? Oh, how pretentious. Aw, well, yeah. Not interested. Not interested. You never let me have any fun. I know. I rule this podcast with an iron fist. I guess we'll just have to record a show instead. All right, fine. On that note, welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, episode number 32 for November 2013. My name is Ken Gagney, and joining me today is... Who's joining you? It's you! Oh, it's me, and I'm Mike McGinnis. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm doing all right, Ken. How are you? Fine, thank you. Now, this is actually a little bit of an unusual episode due to various scheduling issues. We are recording this one week after we aired our October episode. We might actually want to make a habit of that, or at least moving it closer to, or further away from the publishing date. Well, sometimes we, we end up posting late, later in the month than, than we like, because... Well, we, we record later. True. And this show does take a lot of editing. Yeah, we are far from flawless radio personalities. Indeed. I'm just a mush mouth. <laughs> and I'm right there with you, buddy. <laughs> One of the things I loved about community theater for the seven years I did it was that you always had a script and you knew what to say. And here we're just making it up as we go. Well, perhaps you should type us up some scripts, Ken. We could just get on the air and read from a script for two hours. Sure, why not? And I'll be like, no, Mike, this is where you laugh at my joke. <laughs> See? That might actually be more authentic than what I get from you now. No, oh, that's true. Oh, well. So what's new with you? You're back to uh, work? Not much. I'm back to work. Started back to work actually yesterday morning. and I'm kind of tired. <laughs> oh, you, you got out of the habit of working. Uh, a little bit, yeah. I was starting to enjoy the time off, maybe a little too much. Um, but yeah, it's, it's back to work and... More importantly, I'm getting paid again, so that's a good thing. Uh, how are things on the East Coast? Well, a little bit more about you. I understand that you now have a new piece of fruit in your in your house to go with your apple. Yes, but we don't talk about him. <laughs> wow, okay. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. Yes, I am the proud owner of a shiny new Apple II Pie card from David Schmink and the Raspberry Pi to go along with it. Wonderful. Are you having fun with those? It's uh, it's been a learning experience so far. It's it, it takes a lot of work to get this thing up and running, but it looks like it uh, looks like it has a lot of potential. It's sort of a uh, an open sandbox, I guess, if you want to call it. If you're not the, the creative type that can sit there and think of a project, hey, I want to make a two cloud or something like that, then you might plug it in and go, gee, what do I do with it now? But right. uh, if if you are the creative hardware or software hacker type, the world's kind of your oyster with this thing. I mean, it, it really. It's uh, There's a lot of potential here, I think. There's so much, in fact, that I actually got a little confused last month about what exactly the Pi is capable of. I know it's a standalone computer, but the way in which it's being integrated with the Apple II, the, the, there are so many different ways that it's being done, I was a little bit hazy on the distinction. So Ivan Drucker took it upon himself to send me a helpful summary of what the different uh, tools are. I just want to briefly read to you. Sure. A2 Cloud, which Ivan has created, lets you access disk images stored on your Pi from your Apple II as though... They were actual disks, kind of like the CFFA 3000 does. Or lets you transfer them to actual disks with ADT Pro. Also lets you log into your Pi's Linux command line from your Apple II so you can switch disk images and download new ones. 
though you can also do that with any modern computer. A2 Server lets you serve ProDOS files to one or more networked Apple IIgs or IIes. It can run on any computer in a virtual machine or natively on a Linux computer, including a Pi, so it doesn't need a Pi. Apple II Pi, which you just got from David Schmenk, not to be confused with David Schmidt, hi David, lets you use your Apple II keyboard and mouse to control your Raspberry Pi and provides a neat hardware card for sticking your Pi inside your Apple II itself. Also provides some neat tools for Apple II programmers, which I haven't yet wrapped my head around. And then Ivan closes by saying, the big difference between my stuff and Dave Schmenk's is that my stuff is designed to extend the capabilities of a real Apple II, and Dave's stuff is designed to make an emulator running on a Raspberry Pi feel as though it's actually a real Apple II, with all the additional capabilities that emulation provides, plus provide access to the Linux OS running underneath. So they're both different ways of solving a similar problem. Sounds good to me. Does that sound accurate to you? Is that your experience with the Pi? It does, absolutely. Cool. So thank you, Ivan, for providing that. I uh, hope that that clears matters up for some of us. And yeah, I don't have a Pi, but I saw a lot of them at Kansas Fest, and I wouldn't be surprised if we see even more next year. One of the things that I'm actually looking forward to doing is uh, I've, I've ordered a the, the, Lego, the latest LEGO Mindstorms, the, the EV3 kit, and as I understand it, you can interface that with the Raspberry Pi, and so I'm looking forward to using my Apple II to program my LEGO Mindstorms EV3, sort of like the old Lego card that you used to be able to buy for your Apple II. Right, right, back in the day. That's yeah. pretty cool. Like I said, you can do, uh, if you can if you can think of it and and you're able to program it or build it for the Apple II uh, or the Raspberry Pi, you can probably do it with this, this setup. Uh, I want to briefly mention that Ivan sent us that feedback via email so that I had to read it to you guys. It would have been awesome if we'd heard it in Ivan's own words, which you can now do with SpeakPipe which is the tool we're using on the Open Apple website. Just go to open-apple.net, click a button, and your computer microphone will start recording you and will send us a voicemail message that we can play right on the show. Excellent. You can also email us at podcast at open-apple.net, as always, as Ivan did. And, of course, if there's anything that you say into your message and then later decide, you know, I don't want you to read that on, on the air, you just let us know and we'll excise that portion of the content. Yeah, there have been times when I sent an MP3 to the RCR podcast and they played it on the air. And I thought that was kind of cool because you don't always get to be on a podcast and it's it can be considered uncouth to invite yourself. But if you just send them an MP3, they're like, hey, free content. And we don't actually have to talk to the guy. Absolutely. It's the, everybody wins. Right. But speaking of everybody winning, here's the not- situation where I did not win. This is something that happened to me in the past month, and that is my MacBook Pro which I've been using for the last four and a half years, needs to be replaced. So I had a 1.5 terabyte Western Digital hard drive, or it may have been Seagate, I forget, that belongs in a desktop computer. I bought it by mistake. I thought what I was ordering online was something that was going to go inside a laptop. I never ended up using it. I bought a case for it, an external case and was missing the power supply and the USB cord for that. So again, I never used it, but I've been cleaning up my apartment the last couple of months, found this stuff. I'm like, all right, finally, I, I emailed Charles Mang and said, what what do I need to get this thing running? He told me what cables to buy. I got it. It didn't seem to work. I think the hard drive might have been dead, but then I'm like, you know what? I'll take the hard drive out of this external case I bought. Maybe the case is bad. I'll plug it into this uh, internal hard drive adapter thing that I bought off ThinkGeek years ago. 
uh, plugged in the power supply, plugged into my USB cord uh, on my laptop. And apparently, the since this requires its own external power supply, the power supply wasn't like quite plugged in all the way or something, and it wasn't getting power from the AC unit. So mm-hmm. it tried to draw power from the USB port on my laptop, mm-hmm. and it required more power than my computer was able to serve up, and it fried my USB ports. Yeah, that is uh, that is a danger of, of trying to power devices through the USB. Shouldn't my computer know better than to try to power that device? You would think so. So I did, which is why I went to the uh, Apple Genius Bar, and I'm like, I'm sure you just need to re- reset my SMC or my PRAM or something. And they ran some tests, and like, actually, you need a whole new logic board for $500. Ouch. Yeah, so the computer works fine except for that, but I need my USB ports. I can't make backups without it. It's really annoying. Yeah, imagine. Yeah, so this computer was actually given to me by Apple for free four and a half years ago when I had a two-year-old MacBook Pro that they could not repair under warranty, so they just gave me an off-the-shelf brand new one. So I actually have not bought a computer in six and a half years. So... Time for a new one anyway. Yeah, I mean, I was figuring I'd get a new one in 2014, but so I'm a little bit ahead of schedule, but I went ahead online, I ordered one, and I want one that's going to last me a long time. My half a gig hard drive is already almost full, so I need a bigger one than that. I'm sorry, half a terabyte, obviously. Half a gig is like Apple II size. (laughs) Uh, So I'm getting a 15-inch MacBook Pro with Retina display and a 768 gigabyte solid-state drive. Great. Yeah, I'm expecting a big difference in what I'm used to. I think this is going to be a lot faster. It's going to be running Mountain Lion instead of Snow Leopard, which is what I've been on for most of this time. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, uh, I'm using Mountain Lion a little bit on the Mac Mini with which I'm recording this very episode, and it's okay, but since podcasting is the only thing I do on it, I haven't really encountered a lot of discrepancies yet. Mm. I'm sure once it's my daily OS, I'll be like, what the heck? (sighs) <sighs> so anyway, I'm going to have all new hardware. I also need to get a new printer because my printer is acting up, and I dropped my digital camera, and the battery case won't close anymore, so I put that on eBay. And I also sold this really old VHS to DVD adapter. I bought a much better one last year, the Elgato Game Capture HD, which I'm using for my Let's Play videos. That cost 150 bucks. so I figured I'll get rid of the old one for like 20 It went on eBay for $187. Is that good or bad? I don't understand why anybody would pay $187 for an antiquated piece of hardware that can be improved upon for less. But if people want to give me money for my junk, all the more power to me. Indeed. Indeed. And it's a good thing that you're a, a huge YouTube superstar now, racking in the dollars for all those views. Well, now that we have all the non-Apple II stuff out of the way, why don't we get down to stuff that our listeners actually want to listen to? Oh, thank God. I'm Andy Hertzfeld, and you're listening to the Open Apple Podcast. This month on the Open Apple Podcast, we are honored to have with us a guest that has been long overlooked by this show because both his company and ours have Apple right in the name. Finally, reunited tonight, one night only, is Open Apple with Call Apple. We welcome aboard Mr. Bill Martins. Hi, Bill. Hi. Thanks for having me. Oh, pleasure to have you. Bill, you are calling us from Japan, is that correct? That is correct. Um, I spend a lot of time over here, and uh, it's just... uh one of the habits I have had over the last 25 or so years, um, jumping back and forth across the water. Gotta love those 10 hour flights between the two countries. Now, I always thought Call Apple was based out of the Pacific Northwest. Is that not correct? It is. It is. And we are still in the Pacific Northwest. Um, 
I just happen to spend a lot of time in Japan, but in this digital age where everything can be done online, I could be in the middle of the desert in Egypt somewhere and hopefully still get online. So if I may ask, what is it that brings you to Asia? I've just been over here for a long time, and uh, obviously I've played uh, football over here, um, played in the corporate league here, and uh, it's kind of a, I guess it's one of those things that grows on you. Um, <laughs> having uh, been in a military family, we always figured home was where our hat was hanging, and uh, that pretty much describes my living in Asia. So that's where you are today, but let's talk about where you were when you got into the Apple II, because you are one of the community's longest standing members. Tell us about how you got started with the Apple II. Well, you know, it's it's kind of a funny thing that um, I'll even go back further. I started uh, before the Apple, I started on deck PDP 11.4. Wow, that um, is going I was, a, I was a, actually in Germany um, at Nuremberg American High School, and um Actually, even before that, at Ansbach American High School, um, the military has always had computers uh, far be uh, far before the uh, public schools did, and um, that then in turn you know led into getting computer magazines and just you know things like Byte and Creative Computing and uh, a few other uh, magazines that were out there in the late seventies. You you always o- would open them and find oh. An Apple One, six hundred sixty-six dollars, but you know there really wasn't much to look at. And then all of a sudden, there was the Apple Two, and like, oh my God, the Apple Two, gotta have one, gotta get one. Beg the parents. Um, the parents always say, "Go buy your own." Uh jeez. <laughs> thanks, mom and dad. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Uh, I'll save. I'll save my allowance for five thousand years. Um, exactly. You know, it's it just, um, my father was the one who got me into it. And, uh, luckily for me, he's the one who, uh, actually put out the money and allowed me to, uh, get started. But, um, it, it really wasn't until I started, um, working as a high school kid, um, with APPLE where, the Apple II really started to take hold in my life. And when I say take hold, I had people like Don Williams coming in the office saying, oh, check this out. Here's the very first 128K card for the Apple II. Or, you know, Mike Christensen suddenly saying, hey, we got an Apple III. Uh, Joff Morgan coming in the office one morning saying, here's a five megabyte hard drive. We can throw 140 floppies on this thing. Um <laughs> It's experiences like that that just really uh, permeated it into my brain that, yes, the Apple II was the way to go. And uh, having, you know, had one and uh, spending all my life on it, uh, trying to figure it out, um, even all the way through college, I think. It's just one of those things that uh, I, I just kind of stuck with me. And funny enough, it's still here. And so are you, sir. And so am I, amazingly enough. Um, a few few other members of our community have come and gone, and uh, sad to say, you know, many of them very good members. But um, those of us are st- who are still here still are trying to keep the information flowing and uh, making sure that uh, the next generation of Apple II enthusiasts 
you know, get everything they need to get started. Mm-hmm. Now, tell us about Call Apple. First of all, Apple is an acronym. Apple is an acronym for Apple Puget Sound Program Library Exchange. And yes, Puget Sound is one word in that case. Um, <laughs> you know, it's just kind of one of those funny things that uh, Val threw together in a one page um, flyer when he first was trying to get other Apple enthusiasts together. Uh, Max Cook, who was the computer land manager, um, He's the one who said, told Val, well, put out a flyer. So he did. That one page became, um, Call Apple Magazine, volume one, number one. Um, according to Don Williams, there was probably only a dozen people who actually ponied up the money at the initial meeting. But, you know, the group kept growing and kept growing. Um, by the time I joined them in 1980, it was a group of about 6,000 folks. Um, by the time I left, it was over 16,000. Oh, my goodness. Um, I had to go back to school, as I say. <laughs> uh, school can't wait. Um, but the group, you know, continued growing and eventually became 50,000 members. Um, uh, and even when I was there, we were getting uh, people from every corner of the earth you know, they'd see the advertisement in, a, in a, one of the local mags or they'd, you know, fly the U.S. or whatever when they traveled and they would see our ad. And Val Golding at the time was running a hotline right out of his basement and he kept running that. And it's amazing. So he's talked about some of the places he'd get calls from at 2 a.m. in the morning, but he always answered the phone and always uh, graciously answered the questions as best as he could. If he couldn't, then uh, he was usually on the phone down to Steve and Steve. So um, uh, we'll, 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 we'll call them Steve's, the Steve's, uh, Waz and uh, Jobs. You know, the fact that he could have that relationship with them at that time uh, differed broadly from obvious later years. It, it's a funny uh, start, uh, but, you know, it has been something good over the years. You know, the acronym, well, there's been worry over the years here and there, but um, we've always come back to it. Um, as you know, from even today, we still use it. And gladly, you know, uh, Waz is always as enthusiastic today about it as he was then. So what does Call Apple do now? Do you still, ha- I assume you don't still have 50,000 members. Um, no, we generally get about uh, 5,000 readers a day. And... Well, you know, it's not 50,000 members, and actually the distribution of the magazine was well over 100,000 during the 1980s. It's Most of what we focus on is um, providing, you know, users with uh, software discounts, um, getting things for users that aren't available to anybody else. Uh, We still put, you know, put our magazines up for members. They're available in PDF. Um, unlike some of our other publications, we actually do put all the magazines in PDF format. Some of our publications, uh, we, we prefer not to. At what point did, did Val step away and when did you take over and how did all that kind of come to pass? Val actually stepped away in 84. There was a little magazine called On3. You might have heard of it. 
Um, <laughs> what? No. Uh, he actually worked to, went to work with them. Uh, and then, um, uh, you know, figure that was probably a good fit because that, by that time he had, you know, he had been the editor of Call Apple magazine. He'd also started, um, uh, Apple Orchard, um, in coordination with Apple. Uh, in fact, if you look in the very early issues, you'll see his name rather prevalently. But Dick Hubert was always the president of uh, APPLE up until 1990. And in 1990, as uh, Don Williams likes to say, he walked in the office and looked at certain people and uh, gave them a little pink letter. Um, and he only kept about 10 people on at that time. Um, basically the group had grown to a point where it was starting to spend more money than it actually had. And so at that point, Don Williams, um, walked in and started putting, you know, putting, uh, people out the door in order to bring the group back to what it was. Certain assets that the group had were sold off at that time. Um, but Dick Hubert continued running things until 93. And then, um, Norman Dodge took over and Norman Dodge ran things from 2004 until I started coming back into the picture in 2001. Thankfully, Norman was, well, I, I want to say smart enough to save everything that we had ever produced. And so, uh, when, when I started putting the archives back together in 2001, all of a sudden, Mike Ting, who was our member number two or number three, um, also popped back into the picture and Val Golding popped back up and all these people popped back up and said, Hey, we've got all these materials. Let's put them out. Let's get them, uh, make them available online. Um, obviously by 2001, the internet was becoming, uh, a pretty, um, what, what do I say? Uh, it was used by most everybody by that point. Um, obviously, it didn't have the play on the cell phones yet, but uh, that was coming. And so, you know, it was just natural since I was leading the uh, return of the group into the digital age that I took it on. And, um, you know, Val just kind of sat in the background and watched, you know. So that's uh, that's kind of the progression. Um, the the group itself has gone through about four or five uh, different renditions over the year, name changes, changes in um, platforms. At one point, we even we even sold Atari machines, um, which is uh, why I kind of laugh about a uh, something I saw earlier about uh, Waz and uh, Bushnell having a discussion. But it's you know things like that that kind of make me. Uh, Realized, yes, the Apple was the way to go. I'm glad that I was able to be part of all, you know, that progression or at least some of that progression. And it's, uh, you know, hopefully what we're doing now is, you know, continuing what Val started. Well, I think it's safe to say that if, if you hadn't stepped in and continued the tradition at Call Apple, it probably wouldn't be around today, or at least it wouldn't look like it does now. No, it definitely would not have. Um, and in fact, you know, uh, when I picked up a lot of the materials from Norman, um, it looked like, uh, some of the floppy disks hadn't even been opened in probably 10 years. Oh, wow. 
And you do more than just your own magazines. You also have your own Apple II archives. Is that correct? That is correct. The Apple II archives or applearchives.com as it's known sort of came out of uh, a discussion that James Littlejohn and I were having about, well, what, what is up with all these link sites that just have out of date links or websites that have disappeared? So what we started doing is saying, okay, well, we have to figure out, figure out first a categorization. Um, nowadays there's tons of different magazines or, uh, different, um, software collections on the web, but the link sites that, unless you do just a plain Google search, which uh, isn't very pretty, there's really not a lot that you can glean from it. Whereas Apple Archives puts it right there. Here's all the Apple magazines. Here's different software projects. Here's different hardware projects. If you want to buy something that's Apple II related, here's the vendors. Um, different DVDs that are available on the, on the web, either for free or for purchase. Um, Brutal Deluxe has been uh, very uh, famous for putting out DVDs lately. Um, but it's all right there. If you're looking for a site that's disappeared, it's back in behind um, the link sites. Um, some of the magazine sites that uh, just have a list of magazines, we've actually gone and created a, uh, a nice interface for, and um, Contact is one of those magazines that we've done that for. We also did it for um, 6502 um, and a few others that where you can actually see the covers of the magazines and click on them. I know Mike has done a lot of work in the magazine realm, and um, that's I actually have to blame him for uh, the interfaces that we have because uh, he's the one who first started putting up the um, the covers when he was doing the hardcore scans. I'll happily accept responsibility for that. <laughs> well, you got it. It's it's all it's all your fault. I saw that and I said that's a good idea. We've got to do it this way. You know, make it clear and um, very user friendly. I think that's what the Apple II should be about: is making it user friendly. Now, Bill, what separates your project from some of these other so-called archives out there? You know. <laughs> There's a lot of archives. Um, most of what we put up, we try and get um, the original c copyright owners and say, hey, you know, can we put these up? In the case of uh, 6502 Micro, um, uh, Bob Tripp actually worked with us in gathering up the final issues of that magazine. And he actually provided those uh, to Kevin Green and others so they could be scanned and then we, and put them up online. Um, and you know, in, uh, and conversely, you know, when he was doing the, uh, new version of the, what is the, um, uh, of the, what's where uh, in the Apple II? Yes. Thank you. What's where in the Apple II? You know, we were helping him with, you know, checking the data and whatnot and, so that was a, you know, a share, share type relationship, but, you know, it's his materials. Um, they're up there with his permission. And we generally do not like to put things up unless we do have the permission. Um, if we cannot find somebody or somebody's, you know, gone as far as, uh, 
no longer with us on this earth, then, you know, it's a little hard to seek their permission since they aren't here. But generally, we like to do that first. So you're not just aggregating content from other sites? No, that's something that we genuinely do not do. Um, and I know that has been a problem in the community. Um, you know, we do put up an RSS feed for our uh, news. Um, but, you know, the, the biggest problem is a lot of the work that um, Brian Weiser and myself and obviously you over the years you know, we've done, we put in, I'd, I want to say hundreds of hours, but it's probably in the thousands of hours in doing these scans and, you know, making sure that the material is out there. And, you know, it's just one of those things. People think that because it's on the internet, that it's public domain or that it's free. And most every website that we put up right at the bottom of the page, it says exactly what the copyright is. And if material's on there, it doesn't mean that it's public domain. It means that it has a copyright. It was done by somebody. Um, Brian created a bunch of brochures for applied engineering. They wound up on all manner of site with all the uh, metadata stripped out. And then other people took uh, some of the early Beagle manuals that I had done right down to the screwed up covers that I scanned from my own personal copy and put them up as their own work. And, you know, that's, that's kind of a lousy, lousy way to do business. Yeah. It just doesn't feel very good when you find something like that, that on someone else's site. No. And especially when there is no credit given. And this is one of the things in, um, in, in working with, um, uh, people like Jim Maricondo and Brian Weiser and, and other people who have been involved with APPLE over the years. One of the things that Val Golding always kind of stuck in our brains was make sure to give credit. You know, you have to give credit where credit is due because some of the people who are um, in the community, that's the only recognition they'll ever get is that little blurb of credit. That's a good point. We're, we're always happy to put it in there. And if somebody wants their copyright specified a certain way about on their materials and they're allowing us uh, to distribute those materials, we put it up the way they want it. And as you're bringing all these documents and publications into the digital realm, you've also brought a lot of classic Apple II games into the online realm with your virtual Apple. That is correct. Um, virtual Apple, actually, I can't claim credit for creating it. It was, it was created and then left abandoned. And it just sort of, uh, Jim Maricondo and I looked at this and said, Hey, you know, if, if this is gone, this is going to be a great loss. We got to get this back up. As soon as we put it back up, people were just like, Oh my goodness. I thought this was gone forever. We, what we started doing with it, um, was actually going and approaching people who were the software publishers at the time and saying, is this the latest version of the software? Do you mind if it's up here? Um, oh, you've got another package you haven't released? You want to release it here? And we have published several packages with Virtual Apple that nobody saw in the 80s. Um, we recently re um, published a, uh, a package called Shellshock, which was a online tank battle game where you could battle an opponent over the mo over your modem. Obviously, in this day and age, you know, modems are uh, 
long gone. The game itself is still playable because it, you can play person against CPU or person on person. Um, if you have your modem set up, uh, great. You'd probably still find somebody to play it. But um, it, it was uh, just one of those lost relics that was never published. And the fact that we were able to get it up there, the documentation and everything, you know, that was something. Now it's there for the whole community to enjoy. Um, and each game that we have up there, we take that same kind of approach. We, we try and make sure that, you know, we can get it number one, number two. If it's there, um, if the company's no longer there, well, we leave it there until somebody says, no, this, you can't do this. And, you know, while that's not my favorite way to do things, um, sadly, sometimes that's the only way to do it. This is based on technology from the FTA? This is based on uh, one Oliver Gogol's uh, Active GS emulator, and um, which most people know is based on kegs. And, you know, we've, we've worked for about eight or nine years now on... Um, making it available on multiple platforms. The problem, uh, n- number one is, n- problem is a Oliver doesn't have a lot of time to work on it. The second thing is, you know, we we tried to have um, an iPhone iPad version, which is a wonderful uh, version of the uh, program. The problem that we ran into is that. Apple just will not approve it. Of course, because they don't like emulators. Well, and they, they well, we, we suspect it is the fact that they don't like admitting that the Apple II was their mainstay. Um, uh, I can't say that for sure, but uh, just the fact that they didn't like the Apple II GS boot-up screen in the emulator itself uh, forced Oliver to go back and actually bypass that part in the code. Um, you know, it's just so uh, the virtual, uh, virtual Apple website itself, we built that whole thing really offline. And so we're able to control it much more directly. Um, we're able to add and, um, take packages down where they need to be taken down. Um, we've tried to make it, uh, kid friendly so that the schools can use it. Um, we've approached, uh, some of the people who used to work with MECC, uh, about getting, um, some of their original, uh, documentation and, and notes, you know, and so the, the site itself is used not just by the hobbyist community, but also by the educational community, which, you know, makes it that much more important to have it up. Now, Bill, for a long time, you, as far as I'm aware of, were one of the few modern Apple II users to have his own Wikipedia page. But right now, I'm looking on Wikipedia, and I actually don't see you. Did your page get deleted? I don't know. Did it get deleted? Let's see here. When I punch in Bill Martins, it tells me it redirects me to uh, Canada Party candidates for the 1993 Canadian federal election. <laughs> Uh, that is not me. Um, no. Actually, if if you look up William Martins, um, I think you will find it. Yes. Uh, let's see here. Um, ah, yes. Yeah, I'm you. there. You're under yeah, William. I'm there. I've, I've never thought of you that way, so it didn't occur to me to look you up. Now, there is an entire section 
on this page about your football career. Tell, <laughs> tell, uh, so you go around and you bang people's heads together for a living, apparently. Tell us um, about that. I used to, I used to say that I mash code and smash mouths. Um, <laughs> it was, uh, it was quite appropriate because, uh, you know, I, I've always had a love for the game of football. You know, sadly, every time I started playing when I was a kid, I was always the smallest guy on the field and, um, you know, would have one nagging little injury or, uh, as a sophomore, I started turning out for the high school football team and, um, wound up chipping my kneecap. Um, and, you know, it was just little things like that. Uh, all of a sudden I got to be about 25 years old and, um, I was no longer the, you know, six foot four and 170. All of a sudden I was six foot four and 200 and I thought, ah, Time to go back and play football. Um, and I did. And I played for 25 years. Obviously, I have a, a stint there where I have had injuries for about uh, uh, six or seven years. Um, basically, I sprained a, uh, the number two rib right where it meets the sternum. And basically, I had the car crash effect for a couple of years. But um, I just finished actually playing my last games this year. At this point, I can say I'm glad I'm retired now. Um, I'm not sure how many brain cells I lost because of it. <laughs> um, I was quite fortunate in my 25 years where I didn't have too many injuries that were, uh, what, what do we say, career-ending injuries. It was, it was good fun. And this was all in Japan that you were playing? It was all in Japan. I played um, mostly for club teams and uh, played for one of the base teams, as well as in the corporate league here, the top division of the corporate league um, for Unisys. And, you know, uh, after 25 years, I guess I deserve to hang up my cleats. Now, the stereotype is that uh, the Japanese are shorter than Americans. If, if that's true, did you have this overwhelming advantage over them on the field? <laughs> uh, I think um, somebody needs to rewrite that stereotype because... Um, <laughs> Uh, particularly in the corporate league. I mean, I was facing guys who could have been on any division, you know, division one, two or three, you know, football team. Some of these guys are six, five, six, six, you know, two seventy, two eighty. And, you know, I still only probably weigh about two forty five, two fifty. Uh, not the biggest guy on the field. Um, uh, as, as Ken there knows, uh, probably the meanest, uh, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> it's, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things when you put on that helmet, you, you become a completely different person. Um, I think, uh, beast mode, uh, is the right <laughs> moniker for it. Um, but you know, when that helmet's off, it's, uh, just bill the apple geek. Um, you know, give me my pocket protector. I'd probably fit right in. Um, but, yeah, the football was something that uh, did take uh, uh, a lot of my life, and uh, now I have a lot of Sundays where I can play with the Apple Twos again. Excellent. Well, let's take the Apple II version of Bill on the rest of the Open Apple Show. Get what's new and exciting in retro computing with two news. Well, you know, I saw this uh, news story back a bit ago. You know, I know uh, 
Wendell's been working on uh, Apple One related things for a little while, um, obviously 35 years plus. He's got this nifty little Apple One on his website that's completely clear cased. And there's only been one other Apple One I've seen that was clear cased uh, by uh, Apple One owner here in Japan. But this one has the whole machine there. He's got a modern flat screen LCD and all kinds of nifty additions to the Apple One that, my goodness, uh, I don't think anybody else could ever create. He's got a USB connector and everything else for it now. It's a pretty dramatic change in the Apple One with 32K of DRAM. And it uses an iPod for program storage. Yeah, it's just it's just amazing, the piece of equipment. I mean, I, I originally saw that iPod in the photo. I'm like, it looks like it's just resting there on the case. I'm like, maybe he just left it there, but it's actually integrated into it's his Apple One. It's integrated into his Apple One, yes. That's ridiculous. The keyboard, you know, it's just like, that looks almost like the Apple Two. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're pretty close. I've never known anybody to use an iPod for an Apple Two. Well, actually, there is a, there is precedent. There was a guy who did a music video on an Apple Two that he actually used, I believe, an iPod to load the music or I, I can't remember exactly what it was, but that's the only other instance I know where an iPod was actually used with a, any Apple machine of that generation. Yeah, the guys at Panic, which make the Mac FTP program transmit, they played Jed's Beautiful Ground, the music video. That's right, yes. Yeah, they, yes. They, they loaded the cassette audio into iTunes and plugged the headphone jack on their iPad to the audio in on the Apple II and then played it to load the program in. Yeah, and you know, the Apple One's no different since it uses the the same type of cassette interface. You know, I don't see why the iPod wouldn't work. In fact, it's probably be uh, a lot better than having a cassette inter- uh, an actual cassette player there trying to load off a tape. Definitely get more consistent sound level off of it. I mean, the Apple One uh, didn't come with a case, so people can make whatever kind of case they want. I've seen wooden cases, I've seen briefcases. So I guess a clear case, you know, you, you can do whatever you want. I know Val Golding had his in a briefcase, um, and I've seen others uh, that were similarly set up. I think the most amazing one was the one you guys had at K-Fest this year, where it's just on a board there. Uh, that's almost kind of scary. That was actually in a Dell server box. That's how he was it in it a Dell server box. Well, yep. that's how he. Thank God it. it was in something. Yeah, really. I think they had five of them running there in California this year, and it's just like you don't want any kind of outside interference causing potential uh, magic smoke. <laughs> that would not be a, a funny situation, especially since some of these machines now are going, you know, for half million dollars and then some. So there was another Apple II that popped up in a clear case recently. This was being an Apple IIc. Yeah, the, you know, I saw this too, and I, I just kind of, I thought, you know, if you're going to go clear case, why not go clear case all the way? The little bit on the back that they left as the original, uh, what do you call it? Um, uh, they say it's a prototype, but it, it appears to me like either part of the case was built beforehand or that this was torn down and built as a clear case at some point. I just don't know. That bit on the back kind of threw me. Yeah, it says in the caption for this Flickr photo set, Note the unusual color motherboard named Terry Main Logic, dated the year before the 2C was released. 
Yeah, so I believe I believe that part's a, a prototype, but the case itself doesn't seem to be very prototypish. I have not seen a blog post associated with this, so I don't know if the guy has done a teardown or a historical investigation into where it came from. Uh, that'd be something to be interesting. For a while there, you could buy there. There were a bunch of Mac SEs and things like that showing up, and there were a bunch of Clearcase Newtons that were also showing up, and they were being advertised for a while as prototypes until I think somebody pointed out that they were actually engineering samples. Ah, so maybe that's yeah, what this well is. Well, this Flickr user, Jim Abellus, has been a Flickr member since September of '07. He has 62 different photo albums, almost all of which appear to be various. Apple products and prototypes. He has a Newton prototype. He has, see, this is Jeff Raskin's Apple II, I think, and uh, a whole bunch of other unusual hardware devices. So, ooh, an iPad 2 prototype. Maybe somebody dropped it in a bar. <laughs> yeah, they've been doing that a lot lately, and then trying to sue the person who finds it. Right. So, yeah, maybe I'll drop Jim a line and see what the story is. Maybe he's trying to, I don't know, create the next shrine of Apple or something. Yeah, he's got uh, quite the collection there. I mean, some of these some of these machines, uh, I don't think people have seen, and especially some of these e-mates and whatnot, a clear case e-mate. I've only seen a couple of them, but I think my favorite one down there is actually the um, backlit Macintosh laptop that he's got there that has a clear case on it. We definitely know that didn't come like that. It just kind of lends itself, in my mind, to the fact that that Apple IIc, while the board may be prototype, I'm almost certain the case is not. Well, speaking of unusual and rare hardware, some of it is actually coming back into manufacture, and that is the Y cable required to use the 2E card in the Mac. Now, JuiceGS had a lengthy article about the 2E card a couple years ago. I think it may have been Ivan Drucker's debut with the magazine. The 2E card is pretty much an Apple IIe on a card, as the name implies. It allows you to run Apple II software on the Mac. It was meant to be a migration path for Apple II users who are upgrading to the Mac, if you consider that to be an upgrade. But you need the Y cable to use it, and that, for some reason, is harder to find than the car itself. Charles Mangan, who creates the retro connector adapters, also known as Option 8, has created his own Y cables, and they are now available for purchase, starting to ship on November 1st, 2013, for $40.95, plus shipping, which in the United States is another $2.92. Yeah, that's one item that definitely needed to be reproduced uh, over the years. I, I see all the time where people are wanting a cable for their uh, for their Apple II card. Uh, every time you find a package specifically for that, it's all the documentation, but no cable. So he's been on a roll lately. I mean, look at all the different other products he's worked on. The USB uh, interface, the keyboard interface for the Apple II. It's every geek's... Uh, what do you call it? Dream store. Yeah. He has been prolific. We should have him on the show. What do you think, Mike? <laughs> nah, not interested. <laughs> so let's see. What is next on the agenda? I want to briefly mention some other hardware that's coming out from our old friend, Jerry Ellsworth. She is a Kansas Fest alumna. We have not seen or heard from her in several years. I think her interests sort of wax and wane. For a while there was Apple II, and then it was Pinball, and then back in... August, I got an email from Kansas Fest attendee Greg Nelson pointing me to episode 101 of a podcast called The Gray Area Podcast, which featured an interview with Jerry. It seems what she's been up to lately, or what she's been in the news for, was getting fired from Valve. There were a whole bunch of layoffs at the software company Valve, 
and she was one of the ones affected. She was working in an augmented reality or virtual reality department on a, some new hardware, and that whole department it sounds like it got laid off, and that project is no longer part of Valve. And somehow, as part of her dismissal package, she got the rights to the project she was working on. And now she is continuing to work on this project and has brought it to Kickstarter. So this is now called Cast AR. They are asking for $400,000. This project launched on October 14th, which at the time of this recording was four days ago. And they are currently at more than half a million dollars. So the project will be funded. Wow, that's a lot of money for an Apple II user. And I just looked the day before yesterday, and I think they barely cleared $250,000. So they've cleared almost $270,000 in just two days. Yep. That's amazing. But looking at that, that is a really cool project. Google Glass had better stand up and take notice because this, for gamers, uh, this is definitely a a piece of hardware that most of them are going to want to have. Oh, yeah. And actually, the most common backing level on Kickstarter is the $285 pledge level, which is the pro package, which gets the person the complete set of the glasses, the wand, and all this other software and hardware that comes with it. Are you not going to pledge the $3,500 tea time with Jerry? (laughs) Oh, and on that note, about her pinball interest, that's never waned. I don't think that ever will wane. In fact, her battles with... Another hardware officiando, Ben Heckendorn, are quite famous. So (laughs) she's a pinball girl, always will be. That's true. She did talk about, on the Gray Area podcast, her involvement in this short film called Pinball Donut Girl. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely. But I I would not say that she's ever walked away from pinball, but she's been involved in it to varying degrees over the years, to the point where I think she was running a pinball repair shop that she talks about on the podcast. I don't think she's that involved anymore, but you're right. Pinball is definitely a part of her life. I haven't heard her doing anything with the Apple II or the Commodore 64 lately, though. She also had a Commodore 64 guitar, and I can't remember the exact specifications of that, but it wasn't Apple II, so I didn't look too hard. (laughs) But she's always got some wacky thing there going along lines of the hardware, and this one is just way cool. I can't wait to see this. We've got to find a way to hook it to my Apple II, though. Yeah, it's not exactly an Apple II project, but I firmly believe in supporting those who support the Apple II, and that includes Jerry. Definitely. Jerry's been there since you know early on. So, Several episodes ago, we mentioned that a time capsule had been buried and then lost, that uh, Steve Jobs had contributed an item to. Well, that time capsule has been found. The National Geographic reality show Diggers actually located it, and it turns out that Jobs put an Apple Lisa mouse in the time capsule. Now, remind me, how was it lost, and where did they find it? I don't know how it was lost, and it was located in Aspen, Colorado. Huh. It had been buried as part of a a conference that he attended. Yeah, and it kind of surprised me that he only buried a mouse. Why not bury something a little more uh, esoteric, you know, that nobody else had? That kind of struck me as funny. Half-million-dollar mouse. It was probably something that he could throw in his, uh, his suitcase to get on the airplane. Well, that's true. Although in those days you could carry four bags. But also, Steve Jobs has never struck me as the most generous individual. Maybe he didn't want to donate anything more valuable than that. That's a, it's a, it's an interesting piece, but, uh, I wonder why that is the highlight of that whole time capsule. Surely there had to be other interesting things on there. I'm quite certain that there were, but it's because of the association with Jobs that it's getting mentioned. Well, 
what's also about to become a time capsule of sorts is the Steve Jobs garage where Apple was founded as, as seen in oh, the no. Yeah, yeah, it's iconic, it's been well photographed. Did they actually get the rights to use the actual house in the Jobs movie? I think they shot in the house, yes. Wow. That that was my understanding as well. And now it is under consideration to become a historical landmark. The Los Altos Historical Commission is reviewing a proposal that they received to consider the house of historical significance. So I don't know how long their deliberation period will be, but it's possible that this will become a uh, protected landmark. I hope we can get more than the uh, 5,000 Apple II geeks in the world to um, actually go and see it. That just seems like a little bit of overkill. The next thing they'll do is take uh, Steve Wozniak's house that he had the cave built in the basement for his kids with (laughs) on the same level. I want them to protect the plane that Steve Wozniak crashed when he was in college. That's the, yes, yes, and and show uh, a complete version of Sublogic hooked up to it. Uh, See? That's one of his uh, famous jokes. (laughs) Again, with the film and with the house and everything else about Steve Jobs the last few years, there's been a lot of history in the news lately. We have some feedback on the Steve Jobs film from Steve Wozniak, Andy Hertzfeld, and Dan Kotke. I know that there was a lot made out of the Jobs movie early on. There was a lot made out of Waz's opinion of the movie. But when I sat down with Waz here in Tokyo, you could almost say he got agitated at the mere thought that people thought he hated the movie. And he said, what makes you think I hate the movie? Uh, I just looked at him and said, well, Waz, you know, this is what everybody's saying. He's like, I haven't seen the movie. I haven't even seen the script of the movie. How can you hate something that you haven't haven't seen or even seen the script of? You know, from reading this article, you know, you can see that obviously facts get mixed up over time. And you can see that while these guys are amused by the movie, they were there. They know what happened and they obviously just kind of go, okay, it's, it's entertaining, but that's not really the way it happened. And Waz was very clear and concise in saying that Jobs was at college when he was working on the Apple One and going to the homebrew computer club. And that one fact is not the way it's displayed in the movie. It's those, you know, him working on it at home and Jobs going, wow. And it's, I think, I think I have to put that one in good entertainment, good try, but stick a little closer to the facts next time. Yeah. I think that seems to be the, the general reaction is that it's, it's meant to be a movie, not a documentary. Yeah, but they tried, they tried to portray it as a documentary, and uh, I think that was just the wrong approach with that movie. This recent feedback from Waz, Hertzfeld, and Kotke came on a Mountain View, California local access TV show called John Wants Answers, hosted by John Vink, who himself worked at Apple 96-2012 and now works at Nest Labs, which I believe is the thermostat company. But anyway... This is actually quite a lengthy article that talks about a lot more than just the Jobs film. It also talks about the history of the Mac and whether or not it was considered a success or failure by Apple. Definitely worth a read. We'll link to that Cult of Mac story in the show notes. Continuing on with our Waz Chats with People theme, we have Waz chatting with Nolan Bushnell, the founder of Atari and Chuck E. Cheese, two companies that both went bankrupt. Of course, the connection there is that Steve Jobs worked for Atari, and it was Steve Wozniak who saved Steve Jobs' bacon when it came to making the breakout game. Woz and Bushnell held an hour-long talk at a technology conference in San Jose, California, and they talked about 
based on this Mac rumors story, almost exclusively Steve Jobs again. He's apparently the only thing worth talking about in the Apple history world. They talked about what Jobs contributed or didn't contribute to Atari, whether he was skilled at soldering or not, and how much money Jobs was looking to get to sell Apple to Commodore, which obviously didn't happen. But again, already history is being obscured by inaccurate memories, and it's interesting to hear these two different sides of stories about Apple's history, Steve Jobs' skills, and the like. I also just wish people would stop talking about Steve Jobs so much. Well, you, you're not you're not the only one, but you know, a funny uh, story about that line is one of the photos I took in 2002, December of 2002 of Steve Jobs. I was uh, talking to Dominique Gopil, who was the CEO of, uh, I want to say, uh, FileMaker Claris at the time. Steve didn't look all that well at the time, and I said, "Hey, you know, Dominique is is he okay?" Dominique seemed to think that Steve was just tired at the time. Obviously, that has gone on not to be the case. He actually, 10 months later, told the world he had pancreatic cancer. But now that he's gone, people just act like he was the god of computing. And in a way, I feel sorry for Waz because it's like, you know, here's the guy who really created Apple Computer. If it wasn't for him, like like you said, uh, he saved uh, Jobs Bacon on Breakout. And... uh really created the machines that we know and love. And to kind of treat him as a, I won't even say second tier, maybe third or fourth tier person in the in the whole scope of things, I think that's just, that's not right. You know, people got to give Waz more credit and bring Jobs back down from the real god that he supposedly is. Well, Business Insider is definitely giving Waz credit. They published a story recently on eight reasons why Waz still matters. Which I think is just a great idea because I'm horrified by the people who either don't know who Waz is or they only see him as the Apple II guy, and there's so much more to him than that. Some of the headlines here on why he matters is not only the Apple II, which is one of them, but he produced the first universal programmable remote. Here's something I had no idea about. He helped found the Electronic Frontier Foundation. It says he was one of the three people who provided the seed money for the group back in 1990. Yeah, but he's done that with a lot of groups too. I mean, he's, you know, he's always back things that he, I found out uh, about Jerry Ellsworth's project from him because he's one of the backers of the project. The guy's amazing to, to talk to him. You know, he has all these different interests that go so far beyond engineering in the hardware realm. And people don't realize that. One of his famous projects, which he called Wheels of Zeus, that was purely to keep children safe. It was a GPS tracking system that he came up with to basically keep kids safe. That has nothing to do with Apple, nothing to do with... You know, I mean, you probably could put it on the iPhone these days, the tracker, but it just shows, and even really back in the 80s, too, is, is interest in the um, music realm. We always give Jobs the credit for that, but I think Waz should be right there with equal credit. Regarding what you were saying about Kickstarter, I'm Facebook friends with Waz, which allows me to get an email notification every time he backs a Kickstarter project, and he backs a lot of stuff. Yeah, he does. He does. So it's not just investment firms and capital investors or whatever that he's founding. He's putting his own money out there. That's right. That's right. I think he lost several million dollars, actually, funding that Us Festivals, those two music That's festivals. That's right. He did. Fun. He lost something like $25 million, which at the time... You know, it was a gargantuan amount of money. And it was interesting when he was at Kansas Fest and they did the Q&A after the, uh, after Randy's keynote, he was talking about it and just the passion 
that he had for that project in particular was interesting to hear. I mean, he teared up when he started talking about it because it was such an emotional, moving experience for him. Another product that we're actually producing and have put out before called the, called the Waz Speaks DVD. In that DVD, he talks about that. He talks about it being enthusiastic and, and preparing to do the US Festival. The fact that that was an interest of his. It kind of shows the, that people put him in a box and there's no place that he actually can fit in that box. I'm still kicking myself that I forgot to bring my US Festival poster to have him sign. <laughs> that would actually be a, a severe rarity. Well, with any luck, he'll be back at KFest in 2014. Fingers crossed. I want to mention that Business Insider ends their story with the eighth and final reason why Woz matters. I'm going to read this verbatim. The headline is, All the evidence says Wozniak is an all-around nice guy. In basically all anecdotal Wozniak stories, the takeaway is the same. He's down-to-earth, humble, and will even wait in line with regular Apple customers to buy the latest gadgets, end quote. And that's something that Kevin Savitz put very elegantly on the Antic podcast, talking about Woz at Kansas Fest, how Woz would just be very attentive and listen quietly while people gave presentations about the machine that he invented. And I thought that was just so respectful of him, and it's so cool that he can be in the audience just like the rest of us. I I have to concur on that. You know, all my dealings with him have been absolutely, you know, he sees you, he knows who you are, he remembers your name. When he talks, it's not pretentious, it's not what we would say uppity. He's just a really nice guy, and he's really giving of his time. You know, if you look at the people around the globe who've actually spent time with him, it's amazing that he actually takes those moments to spend with those people. He's the founder of a company that's a multinational conglomerate. Most of us uh, haven't haven't gone to that level yet. But honestly, I have to concur. The guy is a nice guy, and I'm honored to actually have been able to interact with him because he is he is really a nice guy even to us pixel stained techno peasants <laughs> that's a good expression for it <laughs> now a a kickstarter project that was to my knowledge is not yet actually backed but is involved with is a homebrew computer club reunion this is occurring on november 11th 2013 regardless of the kickstarter and they're going to get back together as many surviving members of the group as they can, including Steve Wozniak, Hypertext pioneer Ted Nelson, and homebrew moderator Lee Felsenstein. So this is uh, something that's been done before, and it was not open to the public. This time it is going to be open to the public, and the goal for the Kickstarter was 16000 They are now at 36000 And I think one of their stretch goals was to have the event videotaped and added to archive.org. I don't remember off the top of my head how much they needed for that stretch goal. It's not listed in their text, but I think they're probably going to meet it. The funding goes on for another couple of weeks until the end of this calendar month. And like I said, they uh, are already 20000 over. All their pledge levels are basically binary values, like 4, 64, 128, 512. But all the pledge levels above $4 are now taken, because those included like tickets to the event and the like, and they had a limited number of that. You can still donate as much as you want, but the only reward you're going to get is a postcard after the fact, and you only need to spend $4 for that. So the $4,096 level 
where you get eight tickets and your company logo in the event program. There were three backers for that, all gone. The same with 2048, 1024. So this event will be happening, and it should be a good time. If you're listening to this podcast, chances are you're not going to be able to go. And I actually did just find the text. It's $30,000 for pictures from the event to be taken by a professional photographer, licensed under Creative Commons, put on the Internet Archive. $40,000 is a micro-documentary that will be shared under the same circumstances, sent to backers two weeks early. So I would go ahead and pledge that 4 bucks to get your postcard, and then you'll get a two-week head start on the documentary, which, at the rate that this fundraising is going, will happen. Yeah, this is amazing. You know, it shows uh, how much interest there is in all those people, you know, and that era. Look how many, how many people are interested in things like Captain Crunch, you know. <laughs> John Draper there, you know, even Waz mentions him quite frequently these days. Speaking of Captain Crunch, I had a great experience with the undergraduate class I teach in Boston the other night. I don't even remember how we got on the topic, but we were talking about how modems work and acoustic couplers like used in War Games by Matthew Broderick. And I told them all about John Draper, a.k.a. Captain Crunch, and how the whistle in the serial would produce the right frequency or the right hertz. And then I told them how you can basically just hold up to a landline a recording of a phone number being dialed. And that's what the phone recognizes. You don't have to actually push the buttons. You just need to hear the tones. And so I, I played the sound of a modem being dialed. And one of my students raised her hand and said, so how come when you played that sound, we could all hear it, all our cell phones didn't start dialing that number? <laughs> oh, the analog days. Well, on the surface, that's actually a good question. Because I had just told them that phones listen to the sound of a phone being dialed and will dial it. And based on just that one fact, why wouldn't a cell phone work the same way as a 1970 landline? So, so I told them it's a slightly different technology you guys are using now. You know, it's interesting that you'd mentioned especially the, the hacking uh, and the blue boxes and things like that. The Esquire magazine article, Secrets of the Little Blue Box, which I think Jobs credited as kind of his idea and, and was as well for doing that, was republished on the web last year. So that's out there if anybody wants to read it. Oh, excellent. (laughs) So Homebrew Computer Club is happening, and another gathering of classic computer users just happened, that being VCFE, and that's not East, that is Europe. Uh, Hans Frock took a bunch of photos of the gathering and posted them on his Google Plus page, and you can check them out. Uh, Hans Frock was also at K-Fest when I was there. Yeah, he showed up a couple of times over the years. Yeah, so that must have been 2003 that he was there. That's right. And, you know, he's, he's, uh, I guess on again, off again in the vintage community. Every once in a while, his name pops up with some project. VCFE, I know he's tried to put that on from very early on. And with the wane of VCF in the U.S., and, and I say wane, some of, some of the events are still very strong and others have gone by the wayside. One would hope that he's able to continue that because I think that's something that needs to be out there. We need to have an event for the younger generations to be able to see these computers. And like you were talking about acoustic couplers, I mean, we use those and old ASR-133 teletypes when I was in school. Yep. That kind of thing just... You know, you're kind of glad it went by the wayside because uh, there were days where you would want to bang your head against the wall and using it. But <laughs> for the technology of the time, it was what we had. It, it does dredge up some fond memories, but I'm happy it's a lot easier to get connected these days. Boy, me too. I'd hate to be going at 110 baud these days. Although, on the other hand, I do think sometimes life goes a little bit too fast. This is another thing that's very true. 
We all want to go faster and faster, bigger machines, faster machines, more RAM, faster hard drives. We've got to have the fastest SSDs now. And well, it's, uh, I think Moore's law also at some point actually was broken, but still pretty much applies to the human condition. Well, we could do a whole podcast on just that, but (laughs) (laughs) let's bring it back to VCFE to give that some context. VCFE 14.0 was held in late April of 2013, and they have announced that the next one will be held May 3rd and 4th of 2014. Details are in the show notes. And also on my own coast, Vintage Computer Festival 9.1 is happening April 4th through the 6th. They had to cancel this year's event, which would have been 9.0, due to damage from last year's Hurricane Sandy. So rather than skip 9 or make it 10 or whatever they're going to call it, next year is 9.1, and it's going to be held in April. So check that out. It's in Wall Township, New Jersey. And one last VCF news item here. VCF Midwest happened again in Chicago this year. And there's a Facebook page for it and a Twitter.com slash VCF Midwest. You can read all the details. So VCF is a great place to get your hands on some classic hardware. But there's one gentleman, Jonathan Zufi, who has been collecting the hardware on his own. And for the last four years or so, has been photographing it for his website called the Shrine of Apple. I remember when this popped up four years ago, it just kind of showed up overnight, and all of a sudden there were these high-quality photos of classic Apple gear, really good-quality stuff. Well, he has continued to expand that collection, and now he is taking the best of the best and adapting it into a coffee table book. The Shrine of Apple is now a hard-copy book called Iconic. It is divided into six chapters. It looks back over 35 years of Apple and includes over 150,000 photos, which is fantastic because there was a book a couple of years ago that was all about Apple design, but it started with Jonathan Ive basically joining the group and looked at that era. And I can appreciate the need to focus on a company that has produced so many products over such a period of time to try to include them all and be comprehensive would be staggering. But that's exactly what this gentleman has decided to do. Is now available. The standard edition is $75. And then there is a special edition, which comes in a case that actually looks like an Apple IIe and costs $300. It is not yet shipping. It will be shortly. So this book is self-published, and I will actually be interviewing Jonathan for the next issue of Juice GS. So maybe we'll play some excerpts of that on a future episode of Open Apple, or you can get the book for yourself or read the interview in the December issue of Juice GS. He'd be somebody you'd want to talk to about how the heck he managed to find the time to photograph every single product. That in itself uh, had to be a major undertaking. Well, one of the questions I have for him is, as you say, his day job is as a mobile app developer, to the best of my understanding. So this is just a little side project he does, shoot, you know, yeah. shooting 150,000 photos of 600 products and storing them somewhere where his wife won't divorce him for it. <laughs> well, as long as he doesn't do like uh, what's his name did with uh, storing his floppies in the oven, the guy who did, uh, oh, uh, Scott Adams. As long as he didn't store the photos in the oven, he's doing okay. I don't know that story. What happened? So, well, supposedly when uh, Scott Adams um, did his first game, he actually put the floppies in the oven. I don't know why or how or what, but I guess his wife almost cooked them. It's just one of those funny things, you know, I think, what's his, what's his game, Pirate Island? Sure. I think that game would have never existed if if the floppies had been cooked. So, uh, don't store it in the oven. 
I'm pretty sure that was one of the warning labels on the Beagle Bro software. <laughs> well, it was also one of the labels on just about everything at the time. Right. You know, don't put it on the refrigerator. You know, like the old joke about the lady who keeps calling tech support and saying, well, I put my floppy up every night on the refrigerator with a magnet. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Yeah, those old chestnuts. Well, I don't know what Jonathan is doing with his collection once he has photographed it, but if he wants to get rid of it, there are nine museums out there, at least, that want your vintage tech. This is a slideshow that was done by my alma mater, Computer World Magazine, but I actually discovered it organically. I was not visiting their site. Last month, we talked about the Digital Den, which is launching in Cambridge, Massachusetts, the launch party of which I'm going to this coming weekend. More about that on our next episode. And they were featured in this slideshow and linked all their Indiegogo backers, which includes me, to this slideshow. So this is a story by Daniel Dern at Computer World about if you want to get rid of your old hardware or software, don't throw it in the trash, don't send it to Goodwill. There are actually organizations out there that want it. And he lists some of them, including the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History, the Computer History Museum, originally of Boston, as we previously discussed, and now in Mountain View, California, the MIT Museum, which I just walked past yesterday because I work at MIT, and several others, including the Goodwill Computer Museum, actually, that Brennan Roberts talked about in Texas last month on OpenApple. And, of course, the InfoAge Museum, which is where VCF East is held, and then Digital Den in Cambridge, and the Living Computer Museum in Seattle, which Peter Neubauer visited for JuiceGS a year or so ago. So, yeah, don't toss those floppies. I've been doing the same thing myself. I'm unpacking from my last move, and I find some old video games and computer games that I don't want. And so anything that's game-related... I put in a little pile, and when it gets big enough, I send it off to the International Center for the History of Electronic Gaming, which is part of the Strong Museum in Rochester, New York. And these guys love this stuff. And even if they don't want it, or they already have three or four of them, at least you can say that you made an attempt at finding a good home for it, and chances are they're not going to toss it. They'll say, hey, now we have a backup copy, or, oh, we already have three or four of these, but we know where else to send it. As long as the material doesn't wind up like what happened with Ishmael and whatnot, where... Oh, right. It gets put in a storage, and then somebody else takes over the storage and just sells it off. If you have these materials, and just like I do, you know, you want to see these materials digitally recorded at least, right? In some manner, accessible to the public. And even if it's not necessarily put on display, I mean, most museums, the majority of their collection is not on display. Regardless, you can at least say that you donated materials to a museum. I mean, how many people... That's that's why I say digital. Digital is the best way to actually preserve it, because there's just way too much to actually ever view. Right. So we've covered a lot of territory, most of it historical this month, not a lot of new hardware or software to talk about, but we have a couple of gaming items, which used to have its own segment on OpenApple. Let's chat a bit about that. There's a nice article here about how LucasArts fell apart, although I guess it's probably not so nice an article, because it's about LucasArts falling apart, which kind of was not good. So, Mike, tell us more about this. Yeah, this is another item that we talked about back when it was announced that Disney was disbanding the LucasArts team. This may only be marginally interesting to to Apple II users, but there's a a nice wrap-up that goes inside kind of what happened there at the end and why Disney decided not to allow LucasArts to continue to develop Star Wars properties and instead disbanded them. Now, again, at the end there, this is, you got to remember, this, of course, is not the LucasArts that we know that created all those great uh, adventure games for, for 8-bit computers back in the 80s, but still, maybe interesting. Yeah, LucasArts made some great stuff for a variety of platforms, including the Apple II. A lot of their alumni have gone on to Telltale, 
Games, which is best known recently for the Walking Dead game for Xbox, iOS, and a variety of other platforms, which really was just a series of cinematic sequences in which you have minimal input, and yet it won tons of awards, and rightfully so in my opinion, because despite that seemingly not a game nature to it, it was quite gripping, and players felt like they had agency into how the story evolved, which is important. Yeah, so it was April of this year that LucasArts was shuttered, but I can't believe it's already coming up on a year that Disney has owned Lucasfilm, because that happened in December of 2012, and this is the November episode of Open Apple. It still feels staggering to me that one company can own Mickey Mouse, and Winnie the Pooh, and Wolverine, and Luke Skywalker. I mean, I don't want to see that mashup. I don't want to see that crossover. Well, I think we see a lot of that kind of crossover just from the, you know, recent movies. I mean, you're starting to see the same, uh, J.J. Abrams who directed, you know, Star Trek gonna direct the new Star Wars. You know, how does that work? With lens flares. That's how it works. Are we gonna see the same kind of dark mood that J.J. brought to the Star Trek movies in the, in the new Star Wars movies? Not that the originals weren't dark, but how far does that go? I'm more worried about brand dilution myself. Too much Star Wars is too much of a good thing. They keep announcing they're going to do standalone movies and, and these different TV series and this and that. And the, granted, the Star Wars EU is already uh, very large, but... And don't forget they animated as well, the Clone Wars series. They're in, like, their season five or six or seven, whatever it is now. I'm just worried that, you know, if you start putting too many movies out like that, the stories are going to get watered down. They're just not going to be as interesting. By the way, what happened to George Lucas's idea for a live-action Star Wars TV show? Is that still happening? No, it turned out to be far too expensive for ABC. That was a company that he was going to work with. One last game item. A former guest of the Open Apple show is Mr. Brian Peachy, sometimes known online as Tenru Nomad. And he's done a variety of fantastic game reviews for eBay, and I haven't actually seen him lately. His videos haven't popped up on my RSS feed from YouTube. And I was wondering, what's up with him? So, what do I do? Drop him an email, ask him how things are going? No, of course not. I stalk him on YouTube. So I pulled up his channel and found the latest video he uploaded was actually about a month ago, so not all that long ago, and I had somehow missed it. And it was the 10 most valuable Apple II games on eBay. And that's not the best games or the most common games. These are the games that go for the most money. And I thought that was a neat thing to think about because we've talked before on the show about how things go for way more than they're worth on eBay. And it's just ridiculous the inflation that some things have. And Brian narrowed that focus specifically to Apple II games. And his findings are interesting, although not all that surprising. Can either of you guess what some of those games might have been? Well, I mean, you know, Richard Garriott's Calabeth and probably Ultima 1. Obviously, there's a few others, uh, the same generation that would probably be right there in the list, but. I'm going to say those two special Infocom packages, the one with the disc and the one with the mask. Yep, you got that, and you're both absolutely correct. There are a couple of other games on there, like Online Systems Soft Porn Adventure. Yeah, there's a big market out there for Sierra collectors for some reason. If you have a title, it doesn't have to be that. It could be almost any of the early titles in really great condition in the original box. You're going to get a couple hundred bucks for it. It kind of surprises me that we just talk about just the games, but you have to almost talk about the apps, too, these days, because... Even some of the apps now are starting to draw in godly money, and I call it the Steve Jobs effect. Everybody thinks that now that Steve Jobs is dead, anything Apple is worth ten times what it really is worth. <laughs> well, everything Steve Jobs touches gold. Yes, I think we covered that subject earlier. Yep. <laughs> the God effect. 
And speaking of expensive things that Steve Jobs have touched, it looks like Brecker, the German auction house that uh, has sold a couple of Apple ones now, is listing another one. So it's got the, the handwritten number 46 on the back, which means it's probably one of the bite shop originals. It says that it's working. It has its complete packaging and original materials. So this will go for a lot of money. Are you going to bid? Sure. I mean, I'll be beaten, but yeah, I'll bid. 10, 20 bucks. Mike, didn't you and I bid on that Castle Wolfenstein painting back in the day? We did, yeah. That was spring of 2011, and it went for way more than either of us could have afforded. Oh, yeah, it was. There was an extra zero, at least, at the end of that one. Yeah, but it's so cool to say that we participated in the inflation <laughs> of that product. <laughs> I drove the price up. I've actually only bid on one Apple One over the years, and. That one sold for, uh, if I remember correctly, $15,000. Such a deal. And that was uh, one of the early VCF auctions done by Ishmael. You know, just looking at this, and there's, it's like a half a million dollars, $671,000, whatever the amount. There's actually a Japanese collector that owns three of these machines. and <laughs> Well, that's just selfish. And, and, you know, and then, uh, like we were talking earlier, you know, there in California, they just turned on five of these machines. How many more of these machines are there? Or are people starting to say, oh, here's Mike's uh, Mimeo, and that's now worth, you know, $50,000. That's the scary thought here. Well, didn't Mike say when we had him on the show that somebody tried to pass one of his boards off as an original? Well, that was one of the fears I had, you know, when I started seeing his boards was that would happen. I believe Mike's made several very minor changes that you wouldn't, you would have to have a real Apple one and know that these changes are in there. Right. In fact, uh, I believe the Optronics ones also um, have a, a similar type little thing. In fact, that's how Philip Lord got his was he figured out what the difference was between the Optronics one and the uh, uh, original. But this Apple One is scheduled to be auctioned on November 16th and is estimated to fetch between three hundred dollars and $500,000. And this one is also signed by Waz. Really? Neat. Surprise, surprise. And I'm glad to see that at least Mac Rumors isn't saying that it's serial number 46 anymore. They, they, <laughs> but saying number 46 with quotes around it because that's what... The bike shop wrote inventory control numbers on the back of their lot, and those are now being passed off as serial numbers when, in fact, they're not. Steve Jobs said on a couple of occasions that they never put serial numbers on any of the Apple Ones. Mike Willigo also has a uh, database now that has little tidbits of information like that, you know, about the fact it's not a serial number. But it, what's amazing to me is, you know, out of 200 units that suddenly his database, you know, is in the 60s, you know, it's kind of has a big departure from the story that Steve Jobs piled him in the corner and had him destroyed. Well, I even mentioned that when Ken, you and I interviewed him, he said something about that number, that original number of just a handful is probably a little bit low. That's what makes this, you know, half a million dollars a, a unit kind of price tag far more outrageous. I would love to have uh, Wendell Sanders' Apple One. Uh, that's a, a nifty machine. Love to see a few more prototypes uh, in that matter. But it would be amazing to see if he does something like Rich did with the CFFA One, whether he starts producing these components that he's developed, say, to work with the Replica Ones or the Mimeo or the Optronics machines. Well, I think that brings us to the end of the news section, unless, Bill, you have anything you want to share? Yeah, you know, back in um, 2003, actually, it goes back further than that, in 1999, Jim Maricondo and I 
managed to digitally remaster the Waz Speaks DVD. And at the time, technology was good, but we weren't real pleased with the quality that we got in the DVD. So Brian Weiser and I are actually going back and remastering it and going to try and do a bit of uh, cleanup on it so it appears a bit brighter and clean up the sound a little bit and re-release it. Probably going to be releasing it on iTunes, just because producing DVDs these days seems almost to be self-defeating. Or quaint at best. Yeah, quaint. I mean, there there will be a limited run of DVDs, but at this point, uh, our plan is more to make it available through iTunes so that we can put it out to a wider audience. And, you know, that video's the time frame of that video is just right after his plane crash. So the fact that Waz was able to speak to a group at that time and have very consistent message throughout it was pretty amazing considering five months earlier he was in that plane crash it's it's a fun video to watch you find some things that you hadn't seen before of was the fact that it's 1981 is a huge thing i don't think any video really exists of that time frame of him and we're we're saying spring of next year is when we're going to release it i can't wait to see it the was speaks dvd actually is was coming to APPLE in Seattle in 1981, one of our user group meetings, and he spends an hour and 20 minutes talking about different things that Apple was doing. Obviously, you know, his joke about Sublogic and his uh, airplane crash is in there. It's quite humorous to listen to him talk about that, but as of yet, I haven't seen anybody actually try and hook their flight simulator up to their real airplane. (laughs) It's a, it's a quite a humorous hour and 20 minutes. He answers questions from some people in the audience and gives you a good insight into the early days of Apple. Awesome. I'd like to see that. Well, it's nice to know that Call Apple has some new products coming out, and I understand you have a, another recent product that you're plugging. Let's talk a bit more about that. Old or new, it's still cool in Retro Views. So there is one big news item that we did not discuss in this evening's news, and that is because we want to save the best for last, and we have a special guest joining us, and we don't just mean Bill, he's special enough on his own, but even specialer is having Bill and Mr. Brian Weiser on the air. Hi, Brian. Hi, Ken and Mike. Now, Brian, of course, you are are an alumnus of this show, so you've done this before, but today we have you on with Bill to talk about your latest product, that being, as every Kansas Fest attendee knows, and hopefully more than just that, is the Wazpack Special Edition. Yeah, we're uh, we're really excited to uh, to have been able to uh, release that uh, at Kansas Fest with Waz. It's uh, been practically a year-long uh, collaboration uh, between me and Bill, and... Uh, we should probably, I know I'm just joining at this point, but we probably should have Bill say a little uh, something about it since he was there in the uh, the early days and knows the background history of it before we get into what it is now. Yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit about what the original Wallace Pack was, because for some of us youngins in the community, we may not have been familiar with the original product. Bill? Well, you know, it originated out of um, a funny story that Waz tells about uh, then-CEO Mike Scott running through the office late one night, scrambling through people's desks, pulling any documentation that he could find, 
throwing it in all together on the copy machine and sending it off to Seattle to um, APPLE founder Val Golding. And of course, we get this package and half of the documentation isn't readable, but being as Mike Scott wants it out to everybody and anybody that we could get it out to, we go ahead and put it together in a uh, 300-page menagerie of uh, documentation that mostly only the technical types would have understood. Um, but at the time, there really wasn't much else for the Apple II. In doing that, a lot of people had a lot of questions. There were a lot of uh, handwritten pieces in there and pretty much unreadable. And so the WASPAC 2 got produced. WASPAC 2 is what most people are familiar with. That was typeset by uh, um, Bob Clardy, along with a few other folks in early APPLE days. But that document really had a number of things in there that uh, became the backbone of what most programmers use in, as a reference for the Apple II, the Sweet 16 information, floating point information, all that is in there. And I started talking about doing this some three years ago. We didn't really foresee that it would become anything more than a PDF. However, uh, sending it all off to Brian in December of last year and about February going, Brian, are we ready to put out a PDF yet? And him saying, not yet, not yet, not yet. You know, we kind of started thinking, okay, <laughs> this is bigger than what we expected. <laughs> well, yeah, that's that's to put it mildly. So uh, when Bill asked me to uh, put my Photoshop skills to the test and uh, resuscitate these old documents, I mean the the originals that were in the WASPAC uh, from you know the 1970s, the originals that APP Ellie worked from were already multi generational photocopies and faxes, so they were already unreadable as the original documents back then. And um, uh, so what I did is went through page by page, letter by letter, doing uh, digital forensics and reconstruction, uh, literally connecting the dots. So, you know, some of the photocopies you could see, oh, well, if you connect that dot and this dot and that dot, that would make the letter A. Well, <laughs> so I actually would go in and connect the dots or uh, we uh, we figured out what certain words were after you know, much looking in would actually go and copy some of Waz's handwriting from another section of the book, but, you know, scale it and rotate it appropriately to, to make it fit. So, uh, it was a lot of, uh, a lot more restoration than I had originally anticipated. You know, th there are different levels of restoration. On one hand, you know, you could just do a simple crop white balance and put a title on it and be done. And that's what I was originally thinking of doing. Uh, when I volunteered to help. Uh, but as Bill said, as the project progressed and, uh, you know, we, you know, we, we talked to Waz about it and Bill can say more about that in a second, yeah. just with Waz's enthusiasm. And it's like, you know, we probably should take this to another level and make it even better. Uh, which is the, you know, the letter by letter restoration I was talking about. It's like, well, you know, we could put this out as is, but wouldn't it be nice if, all these 50, 60, 70 pages, you could actually read what it says for the first time. Or personally, my main motivation for, for deciding to take it to the next level with the 
the insane number of hours that were put into this. Uh, Waz was always uh, a hero of mine growing up and still, of course. And I just wanted to do something nice for him in my attempt to give back. And that was my personal motivation to justify, I don't know, eight months of <laughs> digital hell. <laughs> I, I, I probably could forge Wise's handwriting better than most at this point. <laughs> um, that's a little scary skill to have. <laughs> yeah, I, not, not something you need every day, but... Uh, I've told him that a few times, so, you know, it's not nothing new there. But, you know, it's, it's really Waz. I mean, when I met with Waz uh, in March or April there um, this year, you know, he was so enthusiastic about it. I mean, he, as he flipped through the original Waz package, he, he just, it was like, I can't believe that I did all this. And, you know, for him to be amazed by his own work, he has to tell you just really how in-depth it really was. And one of the things that I found in the original Waz pack, and this is something that a lot of people don't realize, is most most people, uh, most companies, cassette interfaces at the time were like uh, 300 baud. And it was no better than having an old teletype. But his was actually 1200 baud. And the way he did this and accomplished that, it, to read through it is it's just amazing and you get you get a uh an idea of really how cutting edge that interface was in spite of the fact that it's just a cassette interface most people think of a cassette well just a simple tape it's going to wear out but the fact that he was able to do things in half the time that or quarter of the time that other companies were struggling with it's just phenomenal but that that kind of enthusiasm that he had really drove us more to get this done and obviously k-fest is um always a uh, uh kind of a stop point for most of us doing projects in the apple II realm um and we just kept pushing and pushing and thinking oh we'll finish it in time we'll finish it in time and then it's like uh the last few nights were you know one hour of sleep here and there, um, doing notes back and forth on iPhones. Um, it was quite a quite an undertaking, especially after all the hundreds of hours we put into, as Brian said, deciphering Waz's handwriting. Um, but it was it was uh, quite a fun project, um, and the end result is just phenomenal um, compared to what what we had originally. And, and be, beyond, uh, uh, beyond just, uh, the, the digital restoration, uh, and wanting to take it to the next level, uh, Bill went ahead and, uh, secured forwards from Steve Wozniak, uh, Randy Wigginton, who we all, uh, saw at Kansas Fest, uh, Andy Hertzfeld, uh, Keith Walls, Robert Clardy, and Wendell Sander, just to add some perspective on what the Pack meant then and means now and, you know, the early days of Apple. And then Bill and I also uh, co-wrote an introduction. And then the, uh, I guess the final dressing was a, um, the cover, uh, wanted to upgrade the look of the cover from the original kind of muted red that the original was pack was. And so I went to the original Apple EPS, uh, that isn't generally available and uh, duplicated the red, the yellow, 
and the blue from the Apple logo just to, you know, make it a little more retro feel. So uh, we, we've included a few things like that in the book. Now, do you see this as a historical document, or is it more of a practical reference for today's Apple programmers? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I, I, I absolutely concur. It's really an art book. It is an art book, but it's also a, a heritage book. For those people who are digging back through the original Apple IIs now, and uh, Mike Willigal, who you've had on the show, has been one of the uh, foremost people doing that. You know, it's, it's that information in there is actually very relevant because it applies. It's just that in this day of emulators, unless you've got an Apple II configuration, it's probably not going to apply too much. So it w in that case, it would be more of an art book. I mean, for me, uh, I do have a programming background, certainly not on Bill's level. So I, I can certainly make sense of uh, a lot of what's discussed in there. For me, uh, the, the forwards reading uh, from Waz and the others who, who wrote forwards for it, I find that part interesting. I guess you could think of it as a little novelette uh, as far as, uh, you know, reading uh, some thoughts from these people uh, about the time uh, and just going through and seeing Waz's handwriting. Uh, and, you know, as far as the restoration, again, I should mention, while there was a lot of fixing and correcting, I also didn't want to overcorrect. So intentionally left, you know, flaws in there and, and things. Tr tr I try to find a good balance. So it, it, uh, it still has the retro feel while actually being readable. What kind of flaws are you referring to? You know, things like, uh, a, a lot of the paper was used was graph paper. And so the uh, the original documents I was working with, you could see the little square cross hatches in the background. Well, I removed most of those so you could actually read the text that was there. But maybe I'd preserve the outline of that graph paper on some of the pages or the the different letters. I didn't fill in all the little holes. I might fill in a lot of them. But, you know, it still looks like an old dot matrix printout or it still looks like handwriting. So... It, like I said, it's a fine balance between making something readable, which in a lot of cases it wasn't, and um, and not taking away from the historical document that it is. One of the things, too, that um, Waz uh, did was he would write certain letters three or four or five different ways, and you just had to look at the document and see that day which way he was writing it. Um, that may have been fatigue. That may have been um, uh, just, you know, being harried and writing it. Are you sure it wasn't Brian faking Waz's signature? <laughs> well, you know, yeah, I, I, I was channeling Waz. <laughs> <laughs> no, Waz, Waz, Waz is awesome. I, I probably should mention, too, for people that weren't at Kansas Fest, because Waz unexpectedly showed up. I sadly Bill couldn't be there, but I did have the great privilege of announcing this uh with Waz. So that was very surrealistic. I'm announcing the new rebirth of his book, our book. <laughs> it was it was one of those life moments you just don't forget. So getting Waz stood up and talked about it and that was so surreal I I'll never forget it. But I, I should mention too with the um the content of the book, there are things as well that were not in the original Waz Pack and Waz Pack 2. 
Uh, for example, there's an Apple One section. That's brand new uh, from Waz. And, um, when you say it's brand new, do you mean it, it was previously written in the 70s, but he just never published it or distributed it? Correct. That's correct. Gotcha. And, uh, you know, um, Randy contributed some items in that respect, too. And these are these are just, you know, items that were written by Waz, but it's just like when Mike was scrambling for this documentation, he was grabbing anything and any everything. And you can imagine that he was overlooking certain items um, that should have gone in. We felt um, we needed to include something of the Apple One because when you, when you talk about, um, you know, the beast that was the Apple Two and just how in-depth it really is, it came from that Apple One realm, and I think, uh, you know, it's, it's just uh, the way that some of these people like um, Rich Dreher and all these guys have, you know, managed to take the hardware and, and expand it so much further. It shows how open it was, and I, just the fact that it started from that Apple One and that open platform continued in the Apple Two. It really, it really shows that this is the ultimate Apple, the ultimate open platform. You can do almost anything with it. Yeah, that's what. That's why we love the Apple too. Absolutely. That's why people like Rich Dreyer today are producing all these amazing adapters for it, and it's an Apple too. But it, it has so much potential even today. Well, I mean, and there were examples back in the 80s, too. I mean, we talk about, you know, running railroads. Uh, this was something that was near and dear to Val Golding's heart, was running his railroads with, uh, with the Apple II or the, um, uh, the, is it the A10 lighting system that, uh, switches on and off your lights? There was a whole setup for that as well. There's just a lot of potential for this old machine. And this book really highlights where a lot of this came from. And, and the fact that that real structure didn't change a whole lot, but uh, the potential just has been exponential over the years. So how have sales been in the first few months? And they've been okay. I mean, you know, we expected the uh, um, the K-Fest push. We got, we got a lot from that. It just, um, we haven't really pushed on it too hard because we wanted to actually wait until we were on here and talk about the book. Um, you know, the fact that it is an Apple II book, um, generally people who are interested in that time frame are the ones buying it. Um, there are a few people who only want it for, as you specified earlier, you know, a an art-type book. They want something that shows that Apple II in the 70s. And so, you know, it, they've been brisk. It's not, um, what do they say, it's not been lousy. So it's actually been uh, quite quite pleasing, and and the um, the great thing is, you know, we've been able to share this um, this book with, you know, all those uh, contributors who uh, wrote the forwards for the book, and the, each one of them has written, you know, little notes. And this is going, wow, this this is, you know, it's really nice to hold it because it it's a real book. It's not a PDF, and if we'd stuck to stuck to our original plan of just doing the PDF, you wouldn't have that experience. 
Now, not only did you evolve it from a PDF into a book, but you actually abandoned the PDF option because right now this is hard copy only. That is correct. correct. We have no plans at this time for a PDF. And why is that? Because we feel that, you know, there's enough uh, information out there on the Apple II in PDF form. This is something that really people have to hold in their hands and experience that for the first time. You know, it's, it's like this rush to go to digital in this day and age, you know, the, the actual joy of holding a book and opening it and flipping the pages has been lost on a lot of people. But we wanted to just kind of take a step back and say, no, this is, this is something that people have to see in hard copy form. Plus, if uh, you were looking at old dot matrix printouts or someone's handwriting like was, it's nice to see printouts and handwriting on actual paper. Uh, so that's, it, it just feels more real, much like uh, Juice GS or, uh, or the new uh, uh, Apple book that uh, was just announced with all of the photos. Those are best appreciated in print form. You're preaching to the choir, brother. Ah, uh, hey, uh, can I can I uh, sidetrack for just a, a quick sec? Because I, I have to be a, a geek of a different caliber. Um, when Bill was mentioning uh, when we sent copies out to uh, the VIPs who contributed forwards and just getting some emails back, I got one totally unexpected email back from Bob Clardy, and he said, "By the way." I've been a Firefly fan for a decade and just recently rewatched Done the Impossible. Woohoo, brown coats rule. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was totally not expecting a Firefly fan uh, from such an Apple alumni. So, Well, I'm not surprised. As I mentioned in my Juice GS article about Kansas Fest, the ability to become passionate about very esoteric topics is a, sort of a hallmark of the Kansas Fest crowd. So the fact that an Apple II user would be a Firefly fan as well. Doesn't really surprise me. It's just, it's just cool to see these guys on another level of geekdom besides the, the computer technology. So, I have two questions. One, Brian, you'd mentioned that uh, at Kansas Fest, of course, you were able to introduce the, the book with Waz. Did, did you get video of that, and will that be available for people who weren't there to see at any time? Uh, excellent question. I did get video, and I hadn't thought of making it available, but uh, certainly can do. Why would um, you not make that available, sir? You should put that right on your WASPAC website. I mean, this is an official endorsement in person with WAS. That's a darn good point. In fact, come to think of it, I haven't even shared it with Bill. So. Yes, Brian, come, come to think of it. Uh, I think that would be an excellent advertising tool. Yeah. Uh, we, have the fo- we have the photos from the introduction, which is generally what we've used for the uh, marketing campaign. But uh, as far as video, um, <laughs> it's the first I hear about it. <laughs> I, I, I will tell you, too, I, I don't normally get starstruck because I – well, I see a lot of stars at the different conventions I go to. Well, heck, you are a but, star now. Oh, uh, well. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, but um, I was just so caught up in the moment with Waz that I made sure to get a photo uh, with me and Waz and Randy holding the book. 
but I totally spaced off. Wait a minute, I probably should get a photo of just Waz and Randy holding the book. So <laughs> it was. Uh, I, I wasn't uh, I wasn't at my most brilliant necessarily, but uh, yeah, there there is video, and I'm probably not completely appalling in it, so it's probably safe to put online. But thanks for the reminder. Was that Jeff Blakeney who shot that video? Yes. Cool. The other question that I had for you, Brian, since you've gotten so good at forging, was his uh, autograph. I have a whole pile of Apple II stuff that I want to move <laughs> on eBay. That uh, if you could just sign some of the cases and stuff, that'd be great. I knew this was coming. <laughs> I'm very happy to do that. If you can just uh, send those items to me, and I pros- <laughs> promise to get them back to you uh, sometime. Uh, sometime. Yeah, sometime. Uh-huh. <laughs> except, except, Mike, you'll probably have to buy them off Brian on eBay. Yeah, that's that's what I'm kind of worried about now. <laughs> cool. No, I no 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 one could replace Waz. He's uh, he he's he's our favorite geek. Yeah, there he still matters to both to the Apple II crowd and to the IT crowd in general. That is definite. That is for sure. I mean, he and he's still running around the world and. Every time people see them, they're snapping up photos and saying, here, here's my Apple II lid. Um, <laughs> that sort of happened with my uh, uh, lunch with him. I uh, took along uh, Philip Lord, who most uh, people on uh, the CSA2 know as Nama. And he brought along an original first 100 uh, Apple II lid for Waz to sign. So... You know, and, and Waz has always been very gracious in signing things. And, you know, we should always, uh, mention that, uh, you know, that kind of thing is just uh, really appreciated. I, I'm glad that he was able to be part of this project with us. And, um, and, you know, he, as always, graciously gave of his time in writing the forward. Um, the forward actually, you know, I find it, um, uh, very, very interesting because there's always little tidbits in each thing that he does that's new and something you didn't see before. And um, the introduction in the Waz pack by Waz is another one of those instances. So we've been talking about this wonderful book that we know is available in hard copy, but not PDF. But where do people go to get the book? Well, they go to wazpack.callapple.org. That's W-O-Z-P-A-K dot callapple.org. And the, um, there's a link on the website, which, uh, uh, links to our publisher, um, lulu.com and, uh, they can get it there now for, um, I believe it is $44.95. Now with all the interest in early Apple, ever since Steve Jobs passed away and with the movie having just come out, I know this obviously is not a Steve Jobs book, it's a Steve Wozniak book, but... Did you consider that there might be any interest from a major publisher in putting this book on Barnes and Noble store shelves and the like? Um, we actually already have it on Barnes and Noble and Amazon and uh, other bookstores. Um, the idea that it um, it was somehow related to Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs was there. Steve Jobs was part of Apple, but we wanted to focus this one on. You know, purely on the fact that it was Waz who was the hardware geek who really designed all this hardware originally. The focus of the book being on Waz or, um, you know, the bits from Randy and uh, Wendell Sander and 
the other contributors. It's this is purely the engineering side, and Jobs to me was always on the marketing side. So from that from that aspect, we we prefer to keep this more towards a a was uh, specific item. Absolutely, I think that's a more accurate representation of the work. Sure. And, uh, you know, self-publishing is certainly, uh, well, easy, I guess, is a relative term, but it's certainly an easy, quicker way to release the book to the public than uh, tracking down a publisher, which is uh, no simple task. Yep. Uh, now, maybe someone will approach us, but right now we're self-publishing through Lulu. And by the time we published, we had already put eight months plus into this book. So, you know... If we had gone out and searched out a publisher, that may have added months or even longer uh, to the project, and we definitely would not have seen it at K-Fest. Now, in the 30 years between when the original Waz Pack came out and the special edition came out, was the original Waz Pack like, scanned and put into archive.org or callapple.org or anything like that? Was it available? No. It w- the original Waz Pack never was available online. I have the only scans well. I, I take that back. Brian and I both, we, we have the only copies of the original Waz pack in scan form that are available. And the, there is no, um, actual PDF of those scans. Excellent. So that, that makes the new book all the more valuable because not only have you invested in improving the quality of it, but you've actually, you've really made available something that has been inaccessible for decades, which is fantastic. Well, that's definitely, you know, it, it's, it's been it, finding one of them. And I only know of five of the original copies, um, in my search over the years. It's, it's just one of those rare items that expands on, you know, the Apple II infrastructure so much more than, uh, a lot of the books that we see that were you know, off the, off the counter type, uh, books. It's, mm-hmm. it's definitely, definitely been a great experience tra- bringing back a historical document, uh, back to today where people can enjoy it and see it for the first time. Yeah. And it's been a great experience having you on the show to talk about it. Thanks so much for this behind the scenes look at the Wallspack special edition. Thank Thanks you very much, us. everyone. Yeah. And I, unless there is anything else that anybody is overlooking, I think that's the end of our show this evening. Well, see you later, and thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks so much. It was great that we were able to coordinate this. We're calling from three different time zones. I'm on the east coast of the USA. Uh, Brian and Mike are in the mountain time, and Bill, you're in the uh, Japanese standard time, Japan standard time? That is correct. JST, Japan standard time. We don't have daylight savings here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're too smart for that. Well, we like to think so, but... uh... (laughs) Yeah. Excellent. Well, we look forward to seeing you online, and we hope that the four of us can get together at Kansas Fest in a future year. Definitely. Absolutely. Excellent. Wouldn't miss it. All right. Thanks, guys. We'll see you online. Thanks. See you, everybody. Bye. This has been the Open Apple Podcast. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback by visiting us on the web at www.open-apple.net.
At Calgary Comic Expo on April 27, 2013, Jennifer Blackmore asked Will Wheaton to record a message to her yet-unborn daughter to be played in the future to explain to her why it is awesome to be a nerd. Here is the audio from that session. A link to the video will be in the show notes. My name is Will Wheaton. It's uh, 2013, and you've just recently joined us on planet Earth. (laughs) So welcome. Um, I'm an actor, and I'm a writer, and I'm a dad. And your mother asked me to tell you why it's awesome to be a nerd. And that's an easy thing for me to do, because that's who I am. Um, I don't know what the world's going to be like by the time you understand this. I don't know what it's going to mean to be a nerd when you are a young woman. For me, when I was growing up, being a nerd meant that I liked things that were a little weird, that uh, took a lot of effort to appreciate and understand. It meant that I loved science, and I loved uh, playing uh, board games and reading books, and really understanding what went on in the world instead of just kind of riding the planet through space. And when I was a little boy, people really teased us about that and, uh, and made us feel like there was something wrong with us for loving those things. Now that I'm an adult, I'm kind of a professional nerd, <laughs> and, and the world has changed a lot. And I think a lot of us have realized that being a nerd or being a geek is another word you'll hear, and I sort of use the terms interchangeably. It's not about what you love. It's about how you love it. So there's going to be a thing in your life that you love, and I don't know what it's going to be. It might be sports, it might be science, it might be reading, it might be uh, fashion design, it might be building things, uh, it might be telling stories or getting pictures. It doesn't matter what it is. The way you love that, and the way that you find other people who love it the way you do, is what makes being a nerd awesome. The defining characteristic of of us, the people in this room, and I'm going to ask your mom to turn this camera around in a minute. Go there, go on. us all together is that we love things. And some of us love Firefly, and some of us love Game of Thrones, and some of us love these are things that you'll be able to go see there in your history book. Some of us love Star Trek or Star Wars or anime or games or, or fantasy or science fiction. Some of us love completely different things, but we all love those things so much that we travel thousands of miles, which is probably easy for you, but it's still <laughs> We're still on fossil fuels. I don't know what you're doing. But it's, it's difficult. Um, we come from all over, in some cases all over the world, so that we can be around people who love the things that we love the way that we love them. And that's why being a nerd is awesome. And don't ever let anybody tell you that that thing that you love is a thing that you can't love. Don't ever let anyone tell you, you can't love that, that's for boys. You have to love this because you're a girl. You find the things that you love, and you love them the most that you can. And listen, this is really important. I want you to be honest, honorable, kind.
kind. I want you to work hard, because everything worth doing is hard. And I want you to be awesome. And I'm going to do my very best to uh, leave you a planet that you can still live on. 